Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Kristen Yaris, assistant professor of international studies and the director of the Global Health Minor at the University of Oregon. Yaris's research interests include global health, global mental health, transnational migration, migrants and refugees, Nicaragua, Mexico, and Latin America. Her book, Care Across Generations, Solidarity and Sacrifice in Transnational Families, was published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Her work on the book was aided by a 2014 Faculty Research Completion Fellowship from the Oregon Humanities Center. During the, the 2017 fall term, Yaris teamed up with English professor Mary Wood to teach an interdisciplinary course called Mind, Madness, and Society, Schizophrenia Across Cultures and Genres. Yaris and Wood developed the class as 2017-18 Oregon Humanities Center Wolf teaching professors. Thank you, Kristen, for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Uh, first, let's find out what led to your interest in transnational migration and global mental health. Yeah, it's interesting because what led to my interest in the former is my interest in the latter. So I'm trained as a medical and psychiatric anthropologist. I got my PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles. But along the route to my PhD, I got a master's in public health and um, first went to Nicaragua in 2004 um, during my MPH program. I was actually translating for medical doctors who were going to Nicaragua in medically underserved communities and providing free medical care. And during that process of serving as a translator, I heard repeated frequently the expression, pensar mucho, or I'm thinking too much, estoy pensando mucho. So I really, my curiosity was piqued, largely out of the sort of conundrum I found myself as a linguistic or cultural translator, not having the words to translate that into English. So long story short, that led me into my dissertation research mm. through a master's thesis project where I went back to those same rural communities in Nicaragua and asked um, people about what provoked um, pensar mucho, too many thoughts, ex extensive thoughts or excessive thoughts. Um, and out of those interviews that were very, very exploratory, uh, particularly women of the grandmother generation told me that they're thinking too much, the onset was associated with their daughter's out-migration. So I actually never intended to study migration. Mm. It wasn't my plan to be a migration scholar. Mm. I sort of fell into it as I, I wanted to understand women's uh, mental and emotional distress. And one of the main things provoking it was the assumption of care for their grandchildren after particularly daughters had out-migrated. And this, as I describe in my book, has a lot to do with the cultural roles of women mm -hmm as mothers and caregivers across generations. So the two things, that is my interest in migration, my interest in global mental health are, the origin story for both is really the same story. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, Care Across Generations, your book. Yeah. First, um, simple question, what are transnational families? So uh, I guess the most straightforward definition would be a family divided by national borders. That can take a lot of configurations. So it could be that children have migrated first. More often it's that parents have migrated first and left children behind. Sometimes though parents migrate and then bring their whole family with them along. Sometimes migration is circuitous, that is people leave seasonally and return. And all of these configurations you see in the Nicaragua case and also throughout the world now as uh, record historic high numbers of people have been displaced 
um, transnational families have become more and more common. So hopefully, yeah, that answers so the question. So in the particular case that you are interested in where you're focusing on um, mothers who migrate and the, their mothers who stay behind, mm -hmm. first of all, is the main reason that mothers are migrating economic? Is that the primary reason? Primarily, yes. So tell us what's innovative about you, the way that you approach the question of transnational families. What's unusual about your methodology? Mm -hmm. your well, methodologically, I think what's perhaps novel is that I studied the families, quote unquote, left behind. Mm -hmm. So the families in the sending country. Mm -hmm. I didn't start from the perspective of the migrant abroad in the US, Canada, Europe, Australia and move back to the families, so that's often been the case. I, I really was interested, first and foremost, in the grandmother caregiver's experiences, raising another generation of children in the absence of, of the mother generation. So in that case, I suppose methodologically, the work is somewhat different than what else has been done in this area of research. Um, theoretically, what I try to do in the book is argue, as the title implies, that we can't understand transnational family life or even, I think, transnational migration more broadly without thinking about intergenerational perspectives. Mm -hmm. So often, transnational families have been studied Classically, it was the male migrant, the mother left behind, and the children, but still sort of a nuclear family perspective. Mm -hmm. And what I argue in my book is we have to think intergenerationally, and we have to think about extended kin networks and the ways that care is reconfigured following migration across generations and through extended kin networks. So, so tell us a little bit about how care is reconfigured in these cases when the mother is the migrant yeah. and the children are left in the care of the grandmother or the mother's mother. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because on the one hand, I, I, I think there's this sort of tension because on the one hand, there's continuity. That is that grandmothers have been caregivers. They've raised their child, their children, and their children's generation. Mm -hmm. So for them, it's not a leap to extend that caregiving role mm -hmm. into the grandchild generation. Mm -hmm. So that's the piece that's sort of contiguous, or there's continuity across generations. Mm -hmm. But what's different, and every grandmother that were, there were 24 families in my study, and every grandmother I worked with told me, what's different about the case is that their daughters aren't there to help. And I would even ask explicitly, well, if your daughter worked before migrating, how is this any different if she was already working 10 hours a day outside the home? And they would insist to me that it's not the same, that the distance that transnational migration makes matters. Mm -hmm. And it matters for the simple things they would tell me, like she's not here when I need her to bring me a glass of water when I'm sick. That was sort of a metaphor I heard a lot for, I miss my daughter and her instrumental material care in my life as a grandmother. But it matters also in terms of the grandmothers assuming the role of sort of worrying about their daughters and what's going on in their daughters' lives as often unauthorized migrants abroad. In some cases, the women are able to regularize their status, but in many cases, they're working as undocumented or irregular migrants. And um, they're vulnerable to all the exploitation that entails, whether that's by employers, by intimate partners, by the police or the authorities, border crossings are treacherous and dangerous, and grandmothers take on this worry. So um, those are a couple of ways, I think, yeah. So tell us a little bit about the children that remain mm -hmm. behind and how the, the absence of the mother and the kind of reconfiguration of their relations with their grandmother and then I know in certain cases, mm -hmm. subsequently, the mother will want the ch children to yes. come. Talk a little bit about that dynamic. 
Yes. Well, if I could take a step back for a minute. Sure, sure, Methodologically, I never intended to work with children. Uh -huh. And I blame that on my own blind spot for thinking about children as actors in the world and as actors in transnational families. Mm -hmm. I also blame it on my dissertation committee because they never told me <laughs> that I needed to study the children. Okay. But I had to go back while I was in the field. Mm -hmm. I had to realize that the story would be incomplete. The story of the grandmothers and the story of these families would be incomplete if I didn't also work with the children, talk to the children, hang out with the children, mm -hmm. do ethnography with the children. Mm -hmm. So I went back to the IRB at UCLA at the time who approved the study and I said, I need an amendment here and I need to work with these kids. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do that. It was a little difficult actually because they're minors. Um, but yeah, working with the children was fascinating for me. Um, I think it really taught me a lot about how agentive children are. Mm -hmm. Children as young as eight, nine, ten, when their parents had migrated or when their mother had migrated, were very articulate about why mom had left. Mm -hmm. Economic reasons, mom couldn't find work, mom was in debt here, mom needs to work, mom is working two jobs abroad so that I can have a life here, mm -hmm. so that I can study, so that I can be successful. Um, so children are very articulate about the whole range of ways that their parents have sort of responded to global inequalities and how that's impacted their, their family life. So um, children's experience of their grandmothers as caregivers is complicated. On the one hand, um, I found something really interesting for me was that the children, without exception, refer to their grandmothers as mama. Mm -hmm. So they have two moms. They have their mama, you know, Carla, who's their biological mother, and their mama, Angela, who's their grandmother. And they use that term, that kin term, mama, for both. So in their mind, in some ways, we might say that both are their moms. Mm -hmm. But one's abroad working for them and one's here taking care of them. So there's this kind of interesting gender reconfiguration of the mothering role or the mm -hmm. role of sort of caregiver across the mother and the grandmother. And children are aware of that and yet also forming really close emotional bonds with their grandmothers. Um, and that's also sort of without exception very tight bonds because of the everyday care that grandmothers are assuming. Um, the children grow very close to their grandmothers, which means, as you mentioned, that in the cases where the mothers are able to call for their kids to rejoin them abroad, and the mothers, by the way, in my study are in the U.S., but they're also in Spain, Costa Rica, Panama, they're in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, and in all cases, when the mom calls for their children or is able to bring their children with them abroad, that indicates that there's this potential for another rupture for the grandmother because not only has she lost her daughter in this case to migration but also now faces the sort of loss of that emotional tie that she's formed with her grandchild and that's difficult for the grandmothers emotionally mm -hmm. and they talk about it as a difficult emotional thing but they also without exception are willing to do it because mm -hmm. they feel like the primor the primary relationship is between mom and child and they think that migration has this possibility of benefiting the family so it's a sort of a double sacrifice, I suppose, the original assumption of caregiving and then the willingness to relinquish care when the child has the opportunity to leave. Mm -hmm. So I know that your field work led you to an understanding of the importance of what you call the local moral economies of care in yeah. Nicaragua. So tell us about that. What did you learn about that? Yeah. So there I'm really thinking about the meaning of care and perhaps the cultural values that infuse the significance of care 
and thus the sort of post-colonic phrase of the title of my book, Solidarity and Sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And this is the way that right currently I'm thinking about care, that it's this really complicated entanglement of the sacrificial and the sort of solidarity. That, and through the sacrifice, grandmothers find a real sense of purpose and value and meaning. And these are women over 50 who culturally, economically, in the structure of Nicaraguan society wouldn't have a lot of economic opportunities outside the home, for instance, if they worked. Often, they're no longer able to find employment after 50 because of the way sort of the age, the labor market is age discriminating. Mm -hmm. um, so they do find a sense of purpose in caring for grandchildren, and I suppose the sacrifice, therefore, is also really meaningful for them. The solidarity piece, I sort of have a long chapter in which I trace the meaning of solidarity in terms of Nicaragua's political history, um, which is that Nicaraguan responding to a U.S. invasion and blockade. There's sort of the, the role of the international solidarity community, um, activists allying themselves with Nicaragua's social revolution under the Sandinistas in the 70s and 80s. So solidarity has this real meaning of standing together um, in the face of threats to cultural continuity. And I think that that, for me, is what infuses care with this sort of deep cultural meaning. And you're, and you're arguing that this is that the, that the configuration of solidarity is really culturally specific in this case. I think so, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit, you've said a little bit, but say a little bit more about the kind of research, the kind of um, ethnographic research and other kinds of research you did for the book. So the book was based on my dissertation research and I, I had gone to Nicaragua on a number of occasions prior to doing the year of dissertation ethnographic research. As I mentioned before, when I was a student in public health, then I went back and did a summer of master's research. So I knew the field, I guess. Um, the dissertation research took place from 2009 to 2010. It was 13 months. I had a Fulbright, I had a, um, a, a Fulbright haze. And um, what I did is I did ethnographic research with 24 families who had parents who had out-migrated, and I selected the families on the basis of the grandmother had assumed primary care for the grandchild, mm -hmm. so, or grandchildren in some cases. So I was pretty clear about that this was the family configuration I wanted to understand. And I had a series of interviews that were sort of sequential, and I would conduct them with the grandmother, asking about the reasons for migration, the changes post-migration, how families stayed in touch, the role of remittances, the money sent back by the mother to the household economy, mm -hmm. asking about the child, about the grandmother, about her health. And I did these interviews in sequence. Then I also just spent a lot of time with families. Mm -hmm. um, meals, I hung out after school. When I started working with the children, I would just help them with homework. I just did that kind of deep hanging out that ethnographers are known for. I also interviewed the mothers. Moms, especially those who are living in Costa Rica or Panama, would come home and visit mm. on Mother's Day, in the December holidays, and I would talk to them when I had the opportunity to do so. I would interview them informally. I would talk to them about their perspective on these experiences. And in two cases, I visited mothers, um, one who lived in Panama and one who lived in Costa Rica, because I had the opportunity to travel. Mm -hmm. And I got to see their living circumstances, their economic circumstances, and how it was to be in both cases, unauthorized migrants in those two countries working in sort of the shadow service economy. What did you learn about the way the mothers felt about their situation? That it's really complicated. Mm -hmm. 
that I think that it's hard for me to put myself in that situation, but I think that they're driven by a sense that their migration is about doing good for their children by providing the resources for their children to study, mm -hmm. to have greater educational and therefore economic opportunities than they themselves had. Mm -hmm. They're really driven by that. So that drive helps them through the turmoil of being an unauthorized migrant um, in the destination country when life gets hard, and it does get hard. In both, in both Costa Rica and Panama, unauthorized Nicaraguans in particular face racialized discrimination, ethnic discrimination, labor market discrimination. Mm -hmm. Their life is hard. Mm -hmm. So to be abroad and to be separate from their family and all the support that their family provides them is a sacrifice for them as well. Um, so, mm. yeah. So I'm gonna switch gears now yeah. and talk about your teaching. So yeah. what led to your collaboration with Mary Wood to develop mm -hmm. and teach the course Mind, Madness, and Society? So I have a, a second um, pre research project. I, uh, for the last five summers, have been involved with a National Institutes of Mental Health grant as a faculty mentor. I'm not the PI on this project. The project is run through the psychology department of the University of Southern California, and I'm basically contracted on summers to mentor students in research um, in Mexico. And this role has led me to conduct my own primary data collection in a psychiatric hospital in southeast Mexico. It's a public hospital. And I've done um, interviews with patients diagnosed with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorders, other major mental illness, and their family caregivers. And I've published a little bit on this work, but I uh, hadn't taught directly about this work. It turns out that Mary uh, Wood and I um, know one another because from when I joined the faculty of the University of Oregon, we've had a narrative um, health and social justice research interest group. And the two of you run that group. We ran I, that yeah. group through the Center for Study of Women in Society. Mm -hmm. The CSWS rig structure no longer exists as of this year. So we were looking for a way to sort of continue our conversations and collaborations in some sense. But it also turns out that, to my knowledge, on this campus, the only other person doing sort of active humanistic research on major mental illness and schizophrenia is Mary. And so we just got to talking about wanting to bring our two disciplinary perspectives, that is a more ethnographic, cross-cultural perspective and a more critical, humanistic, historical perspective to the question of mental illness and its diagnosis. And so that's really what led us to teach the class. Mm -hmm. So what are the goals that you have for the class? What are you, what well, are you now that we're in week nine, hopefully we've achieved some of them. Mm -hmm. But we've sort of taken the students through the history of the DSM, of American psychiatry. Say what the DSM Yes, yeah, sorry. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The history of American psychiatry's sort of fraught relationship with medicine more broadly. Mm -hmm. The way that the DSM is a diagnostic schedule in some ways reflects psychiatry's attempts to assert itself as medical science. Um, the troubles with diagnosis across cultures and particularly, but also as the diagnostic criteria map on or don't map on to individual lived experience. We've also used the class, however, ourselves to explore the history of the uh, asylum, the mental hospital in mm -hmm. the state of Oregon. Mm -hmm. We got um, the OHC Wolf Fellowship and we were able to use it to take the students up to the State Hospital Museum of Mental Health in mm -hmm. Salem, mm -hmm. um, which was a fascinating experience for us and for the students. 
Mary and I went first in the summer. We had a conversation with uh, a woman there who's a psychiatric social worker whose father was one of the hospital administrators for many decades in the mm -hmm. mid-20th century. She is a wealth of knowledge about the hospital. Um, and then we took the students and we met with patients. We met with people who represent Oregon's peer support or consumer survivor ex-patient CSX movement. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of led us now to thinking about uh, a, a research project in, the, in this area, so. Say a little bit more about that. So uh, as we've m met these folks, some of them who are longstanding um, activists within the CXS movement or the peer support movement in Eugene in the state of Oregon, we've also become really interested in the transformation of mental health care in America, mm -hmm. in American psychiatry, and in this state over time. And so what we're currently working on um, as we speak is a VPRI um, research grant, an internal research grant where next summer we could look a little bit more deeply at some of the archival materials we have right here in Special Collections on the Morningside Hospital, which was a psychiatric hospital in Portland, which shut down in the mid-20th century, mm. but which for decades was receiving patients who were largely Alaska Natives when Alaska was just a territory, mm. and thinking about issues of race, ethnicity, class, and gender as they show up in these patient records historically, but also thinking about those same things in the current peer support movement and the implications of these for you know, the reform of mental health care and treatment now in the present day in, in this state because all of these things are sort of being debated, the extent to which first-person experience can be incorporated in mental health care, um, how we institutionalize that in mental, mental health policy in this state, et cetera. So what do you, um, how do the students, how are they responding to the experience? How, what's your sense yeah. of that? That it's been intense. <laughs> yeah, I could tell. I went to one lecture that you had a guest lecture and Correct. it was clear that the, for the students it was intense. I could tell by the way that they were responding to that lecture. That yes, every class period after sort of the second week, we've decided we would get in circles and we would just share. Um, I think a lot of students in the class either have uh, their fir own first person experience of mental illness or a peer or family member who's been diagnosed with mental illness. Um, people are sharing that. We're learning together about the individual and social struggles about things like stigma, mm -hmm. about the, the way that people feel their humanity has been violated by psychiatric institutions, mm -hmm. but also about the complicated relationship that people have with, for instance, pharmaceuticals, that for some people they're really helpful, for other people they're really harmful. So we're just learning about the complex terrain of mental distress and of psychiatry more generally. We're also exploring cross-cultural dimensions of mental illness. Yeah. So how do these things look in India, in Ghana, in Latin America, in Mexico, and what things maybe people have in common and what things may be culturally informed or very reflective of particular social worlds. So, and then the role of caregivers, families, caring others in supporting people's recovery. So I'm not sure for the students exactly, we'll see what they say in their evaluations, but it's felt like a very participatory class. I think it's helped a lot that Mary and I are co-teaching because we're able to say that one of us has this expertise, one of us has this expertise, but neither of us has all the expertise. And I think that creates a little more level playing ground for the conversations that we're having in class. Are any of the students psychology majors? Are any students in the no. class hoping to go into that profession? Yes. 
In fact, a number of them are in the Global Health Minor, which um, mm -hmm. you mentioned at the outset. We mm -hmm. just have started this term on campus. So people are interested in public health and public mental health, some of them in global health. Um, we don't have any psychology majors, which we think is interesting. Mm -hmm. We did, however, have a psychologist who audited the class. He's a retired clinical psychologist who moved to Eugene from New York, and he's been an amazing member of the class this term. It's been really fun to have him. Has he learned? Oh, yeah. Think? Yeah. <laughs> he's been great. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned the Global Health Minor. Tell us about the Global Health Minor. What, what, well, what led you to it and say something about it? What led me to it was student interest and basically demand. Mm -hmm. I was brought to this campus to start a global health curricular concentration in the Department of International Studies. That was sort of my charge. Um, students told me right away that they were interested in more than just a concentration in a major. They wanted a minor. They wanted a major in global health. There's an active student group on this campus called Students for Global Health. Mm -hmm. So I started working with them about three years ago, and they pushed faculty to respond to their interest. Um, the great thing is that on the one hand, you could think that we might have a deficit here at Oregon and that we don't have a medical school and we don't have a school of public health. So how could we have a global health program? Mm -hmm. But the faculty who've been involved with me in developing the curriculum in global health have just decided to turn what was in a deficit instead into a strength, that is, we don't have those things, but what we have is strong interdisciplinary focus. So we're definitely drawing on the humanities. I mean, students have to take classes in the medical humanities, in social sciences, and natural sciences as part of this minor. And we're actually hoping to leverage the minor to develop more like tenure track lines in the medical humanities. I've actually been talking to the CAS deans about this just this week. So this can be a real strength for our students and for Oregon to sort of place itself on the map and respond to increasing interest in medical schools mm -hmm. with that undergraduates have this broader ethical humanistic training in health and illness and cross-cultural training in these topics. So, Well, we learned yesterday that they have appointed a director for the Knight campus right. and <laughs> he works in uh, medical research. Mm -hmm. Seems to me that there's an opportunity for Hopefully. your argument to be extended into that, in that part of the campus. Hopefully. We will see. Um, You've, you started to say something about some of the work that you're doing now. Tell us a little bit about your, your newest work. Other so, I mean, you mentioned a collaboration mm -hmm. uh, that grew out of your, so say a little bit more. We have about two minutes left. So I have two ongoing lines of research. One is the one that I mentioned, um, looking at psychiatry, psychiatric care, sort of formal psychiatric care, but also the role of the family in providing informal caregiving support mm -hmm for people diagnosed with mental illness in Mexico. And I do this work at an outpatient psychiatric clinic in a psychiatric public psychiatric hospital in Mexico. And um, it's an ongoing area of, of inquiry for me, and I intend to continue that research. Um, and the other line of inquiry is related to migration. I have a study of what we call transit migration, that is the migration of Central Americans through Mexico en route largely to the US, but now more and more to Canada. And the way that that migration through Mexico is impacting the response of civil society, NGO groups, humanitarian groups, and also informal humanitarians, just volunteers who wish to help folks who are traveling largely by freight train, very vulnerable to the elements, to violence, to state violence, to parastate violence in, in Mexico. So these are my two ongoing lines of research. 
Well, we've come to the end of our time. Um, thank you so much for telling us about yes. all the interesting things that you are, have done and continue to do. We look forward to the whatever products result from these two new lines. Um, all the best of luck with the Global Health Minor. I thank hope you. it will become a major someday. Thank you, and thanks to the Oregon Humanities Center for the ongoing support as well. A total pleasure. Okay, thanks. I've been speaking with Kristen Yaris, Assistant Professor of International Studies and the Director of the Global Health Minor at the U of O. Her book, Care Across Generations, Solidarity and Sacrifice in Transnational Families, was published by Stanford University Press in 2017. Thanks so much for watching.